Hello, and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash. Today, we'll be talking about a poem called Spring Offensive. Last time, in our episode about regeneration by Pat Barker, we touched on three poets that feature in that novel, Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, and Wilfred Owen. Regeneration, like its main character, W.H.R. Rivers, is interested in the trauma and silence of returning soldiers, and it has a lot of scenes revolving around things not being said. The book is not about poetry, but repression. The poetry of Sassoon and Owen, who are patients together at Craig Lockhart, features only briefly as a rare moment of artistic collaboration and genuine communication. Meeting Sassoon at Craig Lockhart was a turning point for Owen's poetry. He was already an admirer of Sassoon, and after the senior poet arrived at Craig Lockhart, it took Owen two weeks to muster up the courage to introduce himself and say that he too was a poet. Sassoon encouraged him to write directly about the war, making him realise that a true poet tells the truth. At the end of the year, Owen wrote to his mother, excited at the state of his poetic development. I am started. The tugs have left me. I feel the great swelling of the open sea taking my galleon. Today, I'll be talking about Spring Offensive, one of the poems that followed this breakthrough, written only a few months before Wilfred Owen's death in 1918. And I'm joined by Adam to discuss Owen's life, his war service and war poetry in general. When did you first become aware of Wilfred Owen and when did you first become aware of uh, like war poetry? And was it, it was, strongly it was, World War One? It was at school we did World War One, and part of it was war poetry because I think it's one of the most accessible primary sources for what life was like in the trenches. We had people actually writing poetry about their time then and people's diaries and stuff. But yeah, it was... Uh, it's very good his historiography because you can with someone who's almost a celebrity you can sort of follow their experience through the war which makes it more makes it more intimate yeah you could just talk about a sort of theoretical soldier or you can talk about Wilfred Owen Mm. who wrote down a lot of what was going on so no I think I'd never really delved very deeply into it but it did come up Mm. several times and Wilfred Owen was always the one that left the, the best impression on me which is funny because he's he is the he comes across as the junior poet mm-hmm. in um well i think that makes that's why it would resonate more with a person who was still at school yeah graves <clears throat> obviously met him through uh, um craig lockhart and Sassoon. Uh-huh. but and owen went to graves's wedding in january okay. so that must have been before he went back to the front or on another leave mm-hmm. but uh graves wrote to someone uh we've found a a great talent, Sassoon and I, Sassoon, Nichols and I, mm-hmm. um, and uh, with a bit more educating, he'll become something really quite special, um, not just a low look here type, or but uh, you know the real thing. Interesting. Um, but they obviously still thought he was unformed, yet raw talent. Yeah, Sassoon and Owen are the the two big names from World War One poetry. Yeah, I guess because Graves became known for other things and distance yes. himself from his own his war own poetry work. yeah i don't know wilfred owen to me was always there'll always be a reference to him you mm. know i think it is very well, anthem for a doomed youth is i think it's i think more people would know that poem than would know declaration of a soldier oh yeah i'd, I'd say yeah i mean the declaration of a soldier is his statement so it's a bit mm. bit more sort of history-ish but i would even say when people if people got quizzed on naming war poems, the titles. Yeah. And got on Flanders Fields, it'll probably come up. Yeah. Um, What's the one that ends in some corner of some forgotten field? Which one's that? That's uh, 
Rupert Brooke, which is a, another one who yeah. you would probably mention, but mainly because he died and because he's such a great counterpoint to yeah. Owen, who died at the end of the war. Rupert Brooke died about midway through from an insect bite, I think. But oh, he, he's the one who wrote all the much more patriotic poetry. So mm-hmm. you've got a sense then of, you know, knocking the Hun before Christmas and all jolly hockey sticks. And, yeah. Yeah. Before we start looking in detail at Spring Offensive, let's read the poem through first. If you want to read along, there's pictures of the poem, a legible version as well as one in Owen's own hand, on our Instagram page, at This. Spring Offensive Halted against the shade of a last hill, they fed, and, lying easy, were at ease, and, finding comfortable chests and knees, carelessly slept. But many there stood still, to face the stark blank sky beyond the ridge, knowing their feet had come to the end of the world. Marvelling they stood, and watched the long grass swirled by the May breeze, murmurous with wasp and midge, for though the summer oozed into their veins like the injected drug for their bones' pains, sharp on their souls hung the imminent line of grass, fearfully flashed the sky's mysterious glass. Hour after hour they ponder the warm field, and the far valley behind, where the buttercups had blessed with gold their slow boots coming up, where even the little brambles would not yield, but clutched and clung to them like sorrowing hands, they breathed like trees unstirred, till like a cold gust thrilled the little word, at which each body and its soul begird and tightened them for battle. No alarms of bugles, no high flags, no clamorous haste, only a lift and flare of eyes that faced the sun, like a friend with whom their love is done. O oh, larger shone that smile against the sun, mightier than his whose bounty these have spurned. So soon they topped the hill and raced together, over an open stretch of herb and heather, exposed, and instantly the whole sky burned with fury against them, and soft sudden cups opened in thousands for their blood, and the green slopes chasmed and steepened sheer to infinite space. Of them who running on that last high place leapt to swift unseen bullets, or went up on the hot blast and fury of hell's upsurge, or plunged and fell away past this world's verge, some say God caught them even before they fell. But what say such as from existence brink ventured but drave too swift to sink, the few who rushed in the body to enter hell, and there outfiending all its fiends and flames with superhuman inhumanities, Long famous glories, immemorial shames, and crawling slowly back half by decrees, regained cool peaceful air in wonder. Why speak they not of comrades that went under? Um, Dolce decorum est, pro pater mori. It is sweet and proper to die for one's country. Yeah. Dolce decorum est, yep. his most famous poem. Do people know more about him than that, or is that the extent of his cultural impact? Well, the poems that he wrote in his his last year are all the ones that are, f- are familiar to us. Well, these were all written. Well, he died in 1918 as well. He died right at the end. He died on the, November the 4th. Oh, that's fucking tragic. Yeah. One more week. One more week. After having this sea change moment, he he had been writing poetry as a young man. Mm-hmm. As a young man seems so redundant to say with his life because he died as a young man. Yeah. But um, he had been writing poetry, went out to the front, yep. got shell shock, was referred 
was, was reported as having shell shock and flown or sent home. Yeah. And he ends up at Craig Lockhart in June, I think, of 1917. Yep. And then this incredibly sort of quick series of events, he meets Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, um, Nichols as well, yep. another poem, poet. And the nature of his poetry changes completely, mainly by the influence of Sassoon, who makes him question what he thinks of the motives of the war makers. Uh Um, He's before been uh, not really uh, rebelled or or sort of questioned that in his poetry. And then he goes back to the front and in that sort of year, I think in October he writes two of the biggest, I think he writes Dolce de Coromast and Anthem for a Doomed Youth in just a month. That's incredible. In October 17. Well, they're both both quite seditious in the sense that Dolce de Coromest meaning, well, Dolce de Coromest pro patria more, meaning it is sweet and proper to die for one's country. It's incredibly sarcastic. Mm. You can tell that he's not, his heart is no longer in the war. I think it was very, I think very quickly people's hearts stopped being in the war. But yeah, it's a quote from Homer? Is it Homer? Horace. Horace. We had this discussion before. <laughs> the odes. Why Why the reference, do you think? I think, like you said, I think it's sarcasm. No, but then why, 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 take, a, why take from Horace? Uh, I think it would, because it would be known to schoolboys. Yeah. And you know, less known now, but, well, known now for that poem rather yeah. than Horace. Um, but, at the, at, yeah, at the time of writing, I think most people who read poetry would have recognised the, the reference, yeah. Wilfred had attended Shrewsbury Technical School until the age of 18, at which point he tried to get a scholarship to attend London University. Failing to get the scholarship, he instead became a lay assistant to a vicar called Herbert. But he wasn't destined for religious service, and within two years he returned to his parents' home, seriously ill with a a respiratory problem, aggravated by his damp little vicarage lodgings. After recovering for eight months, he went to France to become a tutor, where he remained until after the outbreak of the First World War. Got a bit about his actual war service. Oh, here we go. So he wasn't he wasn't a he, a very good prospect as a soldier, like no. lots of people. He was um, signed up anyway, but he was in the artists' rifles. The artists' rifles. Yeah, before joining uh, Manchester Regiment. Um, was this a sort of group of friends who all joined up at once? I don't know. I, I literally scrambled that before you turned up. I haven't actually looked up the artist's <laughs> rifles. Hopefully I'll do some swatting and be able to insert it. Because I think that, yeah, there was a big thing before people knew how horrific the war was going to be where all your chums would go down to the recruiting station together and yeah. all sign up for the same brigade. Which fatally led to them all being wiped out at the same time. Which sometimes. fatally led to tons of small towns and England and Scotland being completely decimated of an entire generation. In 1915, Owen returned to England and enlisted in the Artists' Rifles. This volunteer regiment was formed in 1859 and was indeed originally made up of painters, musicians, actors and so forth. But by the First World War, the regiment was no longer recruiting soldiers from just artistic trades, but nevertheless remained attractive to people from a university background. Because of this, the artist rifles ended up training a lot of recruits to be officers in other regiments. One such recruit was Wilfred Owen. In 1916, he received a commission as a lieutenant in the Manchester Regiment. By the end of the year, he was heading back to France, this time not as a tutor, but as an officer in the Lancashire Fusiliers. So in his whole lifetime, only four of his poems were actually published. Really? Yeah. Well, then they were published while he was at the front. 
Uh, and maybe before as well. Okay. Um, and then seven of his poems were published after his death, um, I think in the, the following year, 1990. Oh, quickly. Oh, okay. And then in 1920, um, finally, the, the poems of Wilfred Owen is published okay. with an um, introduction <clears throat> by Sassoon. So it takes him a couple of years to be, to be known. Yeah, I think I, I'd like to know more about how it worked, but the, the war poets were getting known. I mean, Sassoon created a huge stir by his declaration of a soldier, which popped yeah. up in our regeneration. Where were they published where they were becoming public knowledge? I, th- I guess literary journals. Since recording that with Adam, I've discovered I was wrong. There were actually five poems published in Wilfred Owen's lifetime. Three in The Nation, which were Futility, Hospital Barge and Miners. Then two, which he published anonymously in The Hydra, which you might recall from our last episode was the Craig Lockhart Hospital magazine, edited for a time by Owen himself. These two poems were Song of Songs and The Next War. In 1919, after the war and after Owen's death, seven more poems appeared in Edith Sitwell's anthology, Wheels, including one of his most famous, Strange Meeting. But even a year after his death, Spring Offensive and perhaps his two best-known works, Dulce et Decorum Est and Anthem for Doomed Youth, were still unpublished. The publication of those finally came in 1920, when at last the first volume of Wilfred Owen Poems proper, simply titled Poems, first emerged. It was edited by Siegfried Sassoon and Edith Sitwell, and Owen's reputation grew quickly after that. Robert Graves counts him as one of the three poets of importance killed in the war. The other two, he said, were Charles Sawley and Isaac Rosenberg. Sassoon wrote in the introduction to the 1920 publication of Wilfred Owen's poems that the importance of his contribution to the literature of the war cannot be decided by those who, like myself, both admired him as a poet and valued him as a friend. His conclusions about the war are so entirely in accordance with my own that I cannot attempt to judge his work with any critical detachment. I can only affirm that he was a man of absolute integrity of mind. He never wrote his poems, as so many war poets did, to make the effect of a personal gesture. He pitied others. He did not pity himself. In the last year of his life, he attained a clear vision of what he needed to say, and these poems survive him as his true and splendid testament. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about uh, My Boy Jack again. Oh, yeah, go for it. Because I love talking about My Boy Jack, which means I get to talk about Rudyard Kipling. And he, he wasn't at the front. He was sort of the national poet. He was writing propaganda pieces back at home. And then his own son dies in the war, and I think you can probably detect a change of, in tone of his writings after his... I think his son died mid-war as well, mm. 1617. I don't know, I think you could definitely... looked a bit like Owen. Yeah. Jack. In, in the film. Or no, no, in real life. I don't actually have no idea what Jack Kipling looked like in Just real life. In th- like s- that weird um, First World War soldier look of really, really young, but then with facial hair of quite an old and esteemed person, and the eyes of a an eighty-year-old man. Weren't they both captains? Yes. Well, they they both went straight into um, officership. Yeah. Because they were they were educated men, so they could just immediately become. Well, I think they were um, officer training was only available to people who had a degree. Mm. And I think a degree was only available to a certain class. So yeah, I think, well, I think um, Jack, all Jack Kipling had to do was say, I'm the son of Rudyard Kipling, and he was made a captain. So Even though he was incredibly poorly sighted. Incredibly poorly sighted. I think that was the, yeah, played. I, I'd, I've seen a lot of um, Daniel Radcliffe films. This is, <laughs> this is the only one I've liked him in. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any. He was in a film called Swiss Army Man, where he played a farting corpse. 
Oh yeah, I enjoyed that. He was in um, a little a niche art house project called Harry Potter. There was eight of them. <laughs> I didn't enjoy those. <laughs> but no, the um, they made eight of them. Well, the seventh one was split into two parts. Oh god, I didn't make it that far. Oh, I, I, I did, but it was more of a kind of Stockholm syndrome than out of a general enjoyment. The, the earlier ones are better. I think that, why I are we I, talking about I the casting of Harry that, Potter in the middle? I really want to interrogate the notion that you have stock at home syndrome about something you pay to go and see. Because it's some um, sunk cost fallacy. Oh. When you've already spent, you're halfway through the film series and you've already spent however much money going to see them. You think, oh, fuck it, I'll go see the rest. I just yeah. need to know how it ends. Damn it, you were too quick on that one. That makes perfect sense. I was, I was really hoping you'd immediately crumble, but then you came back with the phrase sunk cost fallacy. I immediately knew you had a good answer. <laughs> so I've thought about this before. Yeah, but, um, yeah Rudyard Rud- Rud- Kipling sitting at home writing his nationalistic colonial-style poetry about the war effort. It's an interesting comparison to a young man at the front writing his first-hand accounts of seriously horrible stuff. So let's start looking at Spring Offensive in detail. With the first line, halted against the shade of a last hill, Owen begins as if interrupting. Not only the meaning, but the sound of that word halted makes you come to a stop. It's not a word that opens up a line or runs smoothly. Though the last hill sounds ominous, like a last horizon, it can also be read as simply practical, the last hill mentioned in our orders, in other words, our destination or our objective. The entire line, like no other line in the poem, actually sounds in isolation like a report to a commanding officer. You can imagine it being dictated or telegrammed in the terse, urgent language of a dispatch. Halted against the shade of a last hill. Stop. In this first stanza, which, if you're reading along, takes us up to Mysterious Glass on line 12, the only direct military reference is that first word, halted. We take it as a given that Owen is talking about a group of soldiers marching, halting, and taking a break, but he deliberately holds off describing them specifically, ensuring that, subconsciously or otherwise, the poem can accommodate different readings. They fed, and, lying easy, were at ease, and, finding comfortable chests and knees, carelessly slept. So it's all a bit too easy, lying easy, were at ease, the second part of this sounding like another dispatch, soldiers being at ease, but not the lying easy bit first. Ease coming so soon after easy, and rhyming then with knees, means that our mouths are full of honey, there's too many sweet E sounds. And yet, as readers, we are not at ease. First off, for us non-soldiers, and the they of the poem are not yet made explicitly soldiers, but for us non-soldier readers, we don't think of knees as particularly comfortable things to sleep on. Then it gets worse when we realise this gobful of honeyed E sounds have got pips in. A bunch of commas that we have to chew over or spit out. They fed, comma, and, comma, lying easy, comma, were at ease, and, comma, We're not just allowed to enjoy the line or the rhyming sounds. Instead, we have to stutter and stop through it over commas and ands. And I don't like the sound of that carelessly slept either. It could mean slept without a care in the world, slept the sleep of well-fed, well-loved Labradors, but said in this context, with a narrator reporting on them from a last hill, it could also mean that it was careless, reckless of them, to choose this moment to sleep. My men, our men, we men, even the men would sound a little bit more personal or a little bit more involved at least. But instead it's just a they. The tone of voice is very distant. But is it a dispassionate narrator or a dispassionate senior officer? Owen coped with the psychological demands of his post with what he called insensibility in making himself insensible, by which he meant cold, detached, mechanical. 
Doing so, he thought, made him a better functioning soldier. Speaking of letters, mm. he wrote a letter to his mother. Towards the end, he wrote, My senses are charred. I don't take the cigarette out of my mouth when I write deceased over their letters. Jesus. Yeah, really horrible. That, the fact that it just becomes less. It just becomes, just, he's completely inured to it at this point. Just talking about senses being charred, it, mm-hmm. that reminded me of, um, this is a bit from Graves' uh, Goodbye to All That. Yeah. Uh, Dr. W.H.R. Rivers, talk, he's talking about the fact that people, men in the trenches peaked, oh. that they, they went through a, a period of, of usefulness, almost um, ad- almost a, p- a period of adrenaline, oh. and then they become kind of Burnt numb, out. lifeless, yeah. charred, as, as Owen says. Dr. W.H.R. Rivers told me later that the action of one of the ductless, ge- ductless glands, I think the thyroid, caused this slow general decline in military usefulness by failing at a certain point to pump its sedative chemical into the blood. Without its continued assistance, the man went about his tasks in an apathetic and doped condition, cheated into further endurance. It, took so- it, it has taken some ten years for my blood to recover. God. Yeah. So I think... That letter of Owen's, he's in that sort of phase. The broken line, line four, in the first stanza signifies a change of orders. After carelessly slept, the caesura has the effect of slipping off, falling asleep, even crossing planes, perhaps, from the natural to the supernatural. If that all sounds a bit vague, bear with me. We'll soon see that this poem is highly concerned with the separation of the physical and the non-physical, particularly the separation of the body and the soul. What is being literally described in this second part of the stanza is a second group within the halted they. This second group don't sleep carelessly, but are instead transfixed by the stark blank sky beyond the ridge. They stand there knowing their feet had come to the end of the world. Odd way of putting it, isn't it? Awkward, dull and flat-footed with all those monosyllables dragging along, but also suggestive of people out of touch with their feet. Their feet had come, they knew, not their feet had brought them, which would have been just as easily said, but their feet had come, like a visiting aunt, to the end of the world. Then again we see something pleasant, the May breeze swirling the grass, infiltrated by something unpleasant. The grass is murmurous with wasp and midge after which we have a definitive sense of bodies being divided from souls in the following. For though the summer oozed into their veins, like the injected drug for their bones' pains, sharp on their souls hung the imminent line of grass. The body is numbed, but meanwhile something sharp is being held to the soul. Something injected, oozing through the veins, coming so quickly after those wasps and midges, cannot fail to have a poisonous resonance. And there is a very subtle extra separation, their veins set against the bones' pains. Their veins are their own, those bones are just the bones. Granted, the bones pains sounds better than their veins, like the injected drug for their bones pains, but dropping the there also helps to reinforce how out of body these souls are. The fearfully in the last line of the stanza functions in a similar way to the carelessly of the carelessly slept, fearfully flashed the sky's mysterious glass. But fearfully in which direction? Was it fearful to look upon, like fearsome? or fearful in character, fearful for itself. Last point on stanza one, um, amongst all of this fearfully flashing glass, have you spotted a glaring error? There's a clue in the title. Spring Offensive takes its name from the offensive Owen took part in in April 1917, though by the time he wrote this poem, the phrase was more closely associated with the German Spring Offensive of 1918. The year before, Owen had orders to march against the Hindenburg Line. 
En route, his battalion did indeed halt in the shade of a valley and wait for further orders. Leaving the valley, they reached a ridge and racing down the other side were immediately exposed to artillery fire from the Germans. Writing of this offensive to his mother, Owen wrote, I had some extraordinary escapes from shells and bullets. So naturally, it's springtime in the poem. We even have a May breeze to confirm this. But what is it we find oozing into veins? Summer. Like lots of other injected drugs, summer is a false friend, promising that they'll make it to summer, perhaps, easing their bones' pains with hope. Given Owen's comments about becoming insensible, it seems that it was easier for him, at least, to kid himself in real life than it was to do so on the page. Owen wrote to Sassoon that the latter's poems in Counterattack scared him more than comforting a man who had been shot through the head and whose blood soaked into Owen's shirt for an hour. You do get a real sense of fraternity, not just of soldiers, but of poets from this yes. time. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone's read everyone. I'm, I, I wonder if there's... um. I wonder how many unknown poets were, how much body of work was lost, or how many were... Well, that's the interesting thing. You know, the other week, um, I can't remember if it was on podcast or off podcast, but we were talking about um, war poets now and war poets since, and how much war poetry gets Yeah, modern war poetry. One thing I'm not sure if, I can't actually remember if we talked about it, but it was just so, so much more of a natural form then. It feels closer to now recording yourself saying something. Well, I feel like there were more poets back then. Yeah. Poetry was a more common form of expression. This was this was, this was back when the Olympics had I think it's because the the opportunities for poets and artists and stuff. Yeah. But the opportunities for expression were that much fewer. Mm. You didn't get to publicly express anything. You had private letters. Yeah. Dear mum, dear dad, dear wife, or you spoke publicly amongst your trench fellows and telling them loads of stuff they already knew. Yeah. The only real reason to record your... Sorry, the only real method of recording your sensations for posterity would be doing something like poetry because you're making the distinction of this. This is a public voice. Writing as... um, You know, choosing to write poetry now is obviously consciously artistic. And I think in the trenches it was... It served a purpose that now might be turning a cell phone on yourself to say, you know, whoever finds this... I'm ducking for cover. Um, there are some hostiles over the hill. I'm surrounded. I haven't eaten properly in days. I have no sleep. My mental health, my mental health is frayed to pieces. Yeah. I can't admit that because it's, you know, dangerous for morale. Yeah. You would do that in a moment of, I need to say this, say all of the things I'm not currently allowed to say, rather than sit down to write poetry because that would just seem... Height of frivolity, probably. <laughs> well, I think that a lot of the First World War was sitting around. Yeah, lots of time for poems. Lots of time to sit down and write some poetry. Yeah. But I think that it was... Oh, what is it they say about being in the army? It's um, intense periods of... It's long, it's lo- long periods of boredom followed by intense activity. Like, I thought they said that about firefighting. It's probably the same And apparently same thought, traffic wardens... Say the same. <laughs> yeah, just boredom, boredom, boredom. Then, oh, you've got and one. And then really intense <laughs> thrills. <laughs> Trouser exciting stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that... Be, I think what, the First World War is the best war of all time to write some poetry in. Hmm. <laughs> because you'd... You're never more than a couple of minutes from being sent over the top to your inevitable doom. But you've no idea whether that could be in an hour or in a week 
yeah. or in a month. So you just kind of got to sit there and contemplate your imminent mortality for, for t- periods of time. In the second stanza, the men, although perhaps I shouldn't call them that, as they are never described as men, I'll go with comrades. In the second stanza, the comrades reflect on where they have come from, the far valley where the buttercups had blessed with gold their slow boots coming up. Apparently this phrase of Owens had come about on a family walk home from church before the war. After trudging through a field of buttercups and seeing his brother's shoes covered in yellow petals, Owen had remarked that Harold's boots are blessed with gold. Once again, something throwaway, something idyllic is given a sinister edge. The comrades being blessed as they walk uphill makes it seem as if they are being given rights almost, religious or perhaps pagan rights, blessed by these flowers before battle or before death. While the buttercups dispassionately bless the boots, little brambles clutch and cling to them like sorrowing hands. And once again, we have a a strong emotion without a clear target. Are they sorrowing because they are warning the comrades? Are they sorrowing hands like those of the comrades' loved ones, perhaps, seeing them off to the war? Or are they clutching and clinging and only yielding sorrowfully because what they really want is their bodies in the earth with them? They breathe like trees unstirred, which sounds rather like they don't breathe. Instead, are they anticipating the offensive and holding their breath? Have you read any of the German accounts of being on the other side? Um, all quiet on yeah. the rest, Western Front, I've read. Um, and then scraps in, in history books. Yeah. Um, Max Hastings is a good one for that. Max Hastings. Hopping across the trenches, getting yeah. really, really great sense of like pairing exactly what you want to hear on the other side yeah. at the right moment. Well, I think that everybody was having a shit time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the third stanza, which describes the order to advance, you'll notice that the Germans are conspicuous by their absence, and they will remain so throughout the rest of the poem. The order sounds a little word which thrills like a cold gust, putting to an end the May breeze and the breath like that of trees unstirred. The little word, literally yet little in all likelihood, not sure off the top of my head if it would be march or advance or attack or whatever, but we can all feel what's being expressed here. Owen pointing out the contrast in the little order, simplifying the devastating, complicated consequences. Whether they survive or are killed or are left injured or kill an enemy themselves or see friends and comrades killed or any combination of these, they all started off from the same little order, the same little word. How could any word, or any amount of words, do justice in this arena? And now we have the first of two odd little words in this poem, at which each body and its soul begird and tightened them for battle. Begird, meaning to bind together or secure. From gird, we get um, girder, the beam, building material, used to reinforce and link sections of a bridge. Um, also girdle, which holds in the waist, and girth, which now commonly means circumference, but used to mean encircle or surround. In the first stanza, we had the sense of bodies and souls being separated, but now they are being tethered, tightened, and begird by the prospect of battle. No alarms of bugles, no high flags, no clamorous haste, only a lift and flare of eyes that faced the sun, like a friend with whom their love is done. O larger shone that smile against the sun, mightier than his, whose bounty these have spurned. All right, there's a lot going on here. Let's start with what is being literally said. The lift and flare of eyes is immediately evocative of resignation. The soldiers are stealing themselves before battle. Sorry, not soldiers, comrades. There's something very beautiful about the eyes flaring directly after the body and soul being begird, almost as if we are to ignore that reference to reflection or add it to the image of those windows displaying their proverbial occupant, the soul, returned to the premises. 
Having just slipped up and called them soldiers, I should say, one measure of the intelligence of this poem is that after reading it the first few times and being asked to describe it, you would quite naturally start out by describing the action in military terms. After all, Owen was a war poet, this is a war poem, so what's going on in it? The First World War. But high flags and bugles are the props of many wars, um, and references like these are very few. And yet Owen manages to allude to aspects of battle that we're familiar with without ever naming them. Thinking we are following a group of soldiers, a lift and flare of eyes can bring to mind a lift and flare of rifles. Indeed, lifting flaring eyes seem to have a similar effect as rifles, as the men do so like a friend with whom their love is done. In no uncertain terms, they are against the sun. Which sounds mad, suicidal, pointless. The classicist would think of Icarus, the pagan might cry blasphemy, but any child, any buttercup knows that to turn against the sun is to turn against life. The soldiers hold themselves mightier than the sun. They are, it is implied, become death. And if we know anything about the sun, we know that it won't be standing for that. It's got its hat on all right, its smiting hat. The last little word of the stanza, spurned, emphasises blasphemy, spurning faith or spurning the gods. And its use makes us anticipate divine judgment, not only in meaning, but in sound. We all know what rhymes with spurned. Yeah, Gra- Graves described him as a quiet, round-faced little man, which isn't, <laughs> isn't, he's not exactly, it's not exactly a, unflattering. a flattering portrait of a soldier poet, but um, I bring that up only to make the, uh, the weird discovery of the day in terms of researching for this. Uh-huh. Uh, a brewery in um, Dunstan uh, made a, a beer to commemorate um, Owen called Wilfred's Mild. <laughs> Brilliant, but for some, it just made me. It just made me think. Wilfred's mild when um, I read Graves saying this. He's a quiet little man. Yeah, he's very mild. He's very mild. Wilfred's mild. Drinks mild beer. Yeah. Have you yeah. got his biography there? Have they, do they have biographies for? So I'm I'm looking at a collection called Up the Line to Death, the War Poets 1914 to 18. Have they got biographies and each yeah, poet potted biographies in the back? Oh sweet! I'll so get that. The, up. the notes will be a bit. They're in alphabetical order, so if you get to them. Oh, actually, I put I put a yellow card in. You think you've just gone past it? Yeah, here we go. Here's the full, <laughs> here's the full um, Graves quote. I have found a new poet for you, just discovered, one Wilfred Owen. This is a real find, not a sudden low here or low there, but the real thing. When we've educated him a trifle more, Robert Nichols and Sir Secret, Secret Fasoon and myself are doing it. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's not even just like with a bit more education. It's like when we get, when we, when, 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 when we knock him into shape a little bit. Yeah. Well. The fourth stanza of Spring Offensive begins with a bouncy bit of pastoral rhyme. This, this could be Jack and Jill or an apple-cheeked stable hand and his shepherdess. So soon they top the hill and race together over an open stretch of herb and heather. This clippity-cloppity stuff is interrupted brutally. The open stretch means exposed. And with no mercy, instantly the whole sky burned with fury against them. As we guessed, turning against the sun could only end one way. Divine retribution arrives, and though we might think of artillery fire, shells and whiz-bangs and machine guns, all we hear is that the whole sky burned. They are not marching against Germans, it seems, but nature. And here we come to the defining image of the poem. As the sky burns, soft sudden cups opened in thousands for their blood, and the green slopes chasmed and steep and sheer to infinite space. Cups collecting blood, in the manner of the ultimate cup, the Rolls-Royce of cups, the Holy Grail, collecting the blood of Christ. This illusion is particularly strong since we already have in mind golden cups in particular, the buttercups. But a field of buttercups, a thousand of them, he says, collecting blood, 
rather diminishes the sacrifice. A thousand cups implies a thousand Christs, and how holy can these grails be if two stanzas ago they were coating boots? Or were they washing feet? The image of Christ's blood being collected in the grail is a world away from this scene, which for all the blood has no mention of corpses or cries. It is like a ruthlessly efficient natural abattoir, the cups opening and sluicing away all the blood. They open at once, as if this moment is the moment of spring's arrival. But in this nightmarish version, spring flowers are collecting the blood of sacrificial lambs. Owen's experience with Herbert the vicar was bound, or begirded, to be short-lived. Dampness of vicarage regardless. His time as a lay assistant disillusioned him with Christianity. Friends were well aware of this, and somewhat dismayed at Owen's mother's attempt to make him seem like more of a believer than he was after his death. On his tombstone she had engraved the following lines for him from his poem, The End. Shall life renew these bodies? Of a truth, all death will he annul, all tears assuage? But she omitted the question mark at the end of them making it seem like he was rather more faithful than he in fact was. Understandably, given their faithfulness, the Owen family were not inclined to think of Wilfred as a homosexual. His brother Harold managed to remove a reference in Robert Graves' memoir Goodbye to All That, which described Owen as an idealistic homosexual. I think he manages to actually be quite funny in some of his poems. Yeah. Funny in the sense that it's, it's biting and he really wishes he wasn't there. Saki. Yeah. Have you seen that photo of him grinning from ear to ear? I've never seen a photo of him. Really? No, I don't know what he looks like. Well, this, what I would say is the iconic, not the, maybe not the iconic, maybe that's too, too much, but the photo of him, mm-hmm. like if you ever see anything about him that's accompanied by, no, it's very solemn, oh. it's kind of side on um, in his uniform. And then uh, just recently in, in doing some research for this, I found a photo of him front on grinning from ear to ear and it just looks like a completely different person. It kind of looks bizarre to be honest because he's still it might even be taken in the same set of photos because he's also in uniform mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know for me there's only ever been one photo of him and so finding another one is like finding uh i don't know a little sketch of the mona lisa having a fag in between fittings <laughs> or something <laughs> that is interesting i guess i guess even even people at the front had to smile sometimes well he probably he, he apparently was a very funny amiable yeah well he writes he writes good poetry and i enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's there a great go. cap. Yeah, it's good poetry. I enjoyed it. <laughs> At the end of the last stanza, the green slopes chasmed and steepened sheer to infinite space, where, if we are to believe this is a description of shell-exploded Earth, does so with a ring of rapture. And in stanza five, we are presented with a rapture in full swing. Of them who, running on that last high place, leapt to swift unseen bullets, or went up on the hot blast and fury of hell's upsurge, or plunged and fell away past this world's verge, some say God caught them before they even fell. It's already a biblical ring to these lines, and we have blasts from the ground on which they went up, up to heaven, that last high place, or up in smoke, or plunged down past this world's verge to, presumably, the hotter destination. This is initially a fairly typical view of a Christian rapture. It's a classic rapture, except it seems to be the wrong way round. The heat and fury of hell's upsurge, this is what they went up on. And I don't think the Chosen Ones are supposed to be incinerated in hellfire en route. And then the apparently southbound comrades, those that plunged past this world's verge, those are the ones that some say God caught. So not only the natural order, but now the religious order too seems to have been turned on its head. Leapt to swift unseen bullets, this smacks of Rupert Brooke in his poem Peace, where he writes with zeal of the prospect of his and the rest of his generations entering the conflict of World War I, to turn as swimmers into cleanness leaping. Leaping to swift unseen bullets, for starters, sounds like suicide, not being shot, 
but like those who went up, it imagines what would be what would be an awful but commonplace demise for soldiers in the trenches, i.e. being shot during a charge or blown up by shells, as quick and sanitised. Some say God caught them even before they fell. Sounds in one way like they might be dead before they even hit the floor, as surely many were, but many others lay wounded, screaming and bleeding to death. This dispassionate and... Neat description here has a mock propagandist feel about it. The narrator has become a brook-like self-mythologizer, or perhaps a censor cleaning up the scene. Killed by machine gun fire in November 4th, 1918, while endeavouring to get his company across the Samba Canal. But yeah, every, every, the rest of his biography is just heaping praise on him from all the great, all the great critics. Mm. Osbert Sitwell has written of strange meeting as great a poem as exists in our tongue. John Wayne has written as the refiner war poem in world literature than Anthem for Doomed Youth. John Wayne? John Wayne. John, <laughs> the famous, famous cowboy director, John Wayne. Little did anyone know that he was an enormous fan of Wilfred Owen. Huge po- fan of British war poetry. In stanza six, we get the second odd word of the poem. Ventured but drave too swift to sink. Drave is an archaic past tense of drive. The last stanza concerns itself with this few, the ones that made it through hell by outfiending all its fiends with superhuman inhumanities. Paradoxically, in this war, it is inglorious behaviour, killing, presumably, that is required in order to achieve long famous glories. It is natural that such inglorious comrades turn against the sun. To them, spring truly is offensive. It must be snuffed out. And after the battle, they come crawling slowly back, meaning injured survivors crawling through barbed wire, maybe, or morally deformed former soldiers now become something infernal, spineless. Some crippled hellion who has yet, by degrees, regained the cool, peaceful air in wonder. In wonder, and not grateful wonder at having made it. This wonder is a horrible wonder. That cool, peaceful air, along with perhaps careless sleep, can be regained after going through hell and committing inhumanities. Not that it can't. The poem ends with a question... Why speak they not of comrades that went under? Why? Maybe because tomorrow it will be they themselves pushing up the buttercups, but also maybe out of envy. The dead are truly the glorious dead, rewritten as martyrs. The living, however, must go on living with their immemorial shames and superhuman inhumanities. I think the entire the history of war up to a certain point has been is now told through things like this, through poetry. I think especially that one. Mm. It, was probably, it was an artist's war, in a sense, on both sides. Mm. He said scholarly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, do you have a particular favourite? Uh, Spring Offensive. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, one thing that's interesting about that blood um, thing that um, Grave said, mm. of man's becoming apathetic and a little bit dazed is that you get a sense in Spring Offensive and a couple of the other ones, and it's really silly to talk about like the later ones, because uh-huh. it's, it's, it's such a tiny it's amount four, of time. Four years, exactly. three to four years. And for a lot of it, less than one. Yeah. Um, but some of the ones that are closer to his the, death, the de- his death yeah. um, they, they do have a kind of distancing. The, the initial ones, he's, he's scurrying about. He is the, the voice well, it's because, because he's we, very close first person. Well, and we, it gets dis- yeah. more and more distant as he gets closer, like it's getting a bit out of body. Well, it's because we, we know that the war ended in 1918. 
as far as they knew, it was going to go on forever. Even so, on the 4th of November. So we, we can talk about, you know, oh, it was just a week from the end. But as far as anyone was concerned, on the 1st, 2nd, 3rd or 4th of November, the war was going to go on for another four years. So I think that by that point, everybody was completely burnt out. Though this is not an account of either the 1917 Allied Spring Offensive or the German Spring Offensive of 1918, there does seem to be a double meaning in the title, however cheesy or buttery it sounds. Not only does Spring offend the inglorious comrades, Spring is also the enemy. It is Spring that launches an offensive. Nature is not only indifferent, it is a positive antagonist. Spring, in the poem, depends on the dead. It is fresh slaughter, fresh blood, which heralds the opening of flowers. Something terrible has happened to the natural order. Death has poisoned the earth, and now even the buttercups cry out for Christ's. From the beginning, the comrades seem destined for death. Their slow boots coming up already can be read as either walking uphill or coming up like shoots from the earth. Already they are with the buttercups, begirded. Indicators that the natural order has been damaged are frequent, and some subtler than men turning against the sun and buttercups drinking blood. The grass is murmurous with wasp and midge, a line that sounds without close inspection to be Keatsian, uh, reveling in nature, but it is in fact murderous with bloodsuckers and stingers. Then there is the previously mentioned May breeze in the air and summer in the veins, the breath of unstirring trees, the shifting terrain of buttercups, herb and heather, and brambles, which, incidentally, ripen in summer, not spring. It goes without saying that Owen was equating the infernal hell with the hell of war, and also that he shared Sassoon's views about the dubious reasons behind the war. If, as Sassoon says, his and Owen's conclusions about war are so entirely in accordance with my own, it seems highly likely that Owen too thought men were being unjustly killed. However, I think the emphasis of this poem, despite its harsh, detached, at moments arch-propagandising narrator, lies not with those who are to blame for causing this hell, but on the demonising effect it has on those condemned to fight in it. By their own volition or not, the result is the same. The men commit inhumanities and stoke the fires of the hell they suffer in. Their feet had come to the end of the world, writes Owen in the first stanza. A strange line, ostensibly meaning that they had walked their deaths. But it is their feet, F-E-A-T, which is perpetuating the war and turning them against the world. Sassoon, in his 1920 introduction to Poems, writes that a month before his death, Owen had written the following to his mother. My nerves are in perfect order. I came out again in order to help these boys, directly by leading them, as well as an officer can. Indirectly, by watching their sufferings, that I may speak of them as well as a pleader can. Yeah, that's probably the most serious thing we've talked about in a while. We've had, we've had a run of kind of fun ones. Yeah, there's, um, there's less, less fun to be found in, in war poetry. But it's, I think it's important. I think it's... How many types of poetry are there where you can sort of whack a, a noun at the front of it, you know? Because you've got war poets, and they're poets, but they're particularly war poets. Yeah, well, a lot, I think a lot of them struggled with um, going back to just being poets. Yeah. Graves had to completely disassociate from his war poetry. Mm-hmm. So soon never really did. I mean, I, that's, I, I very sweepingly said something that I'm sure scholars would have discussed for a long time, but Siegfried Sassoon's name is still wedded to war poetry, Mm -hmm. whereas some people know Graves mainly as a classicist or mainly as a a kind of poet in exile. But Wilfred Owen is only a war poet. Well, he didn't get an opportunity to even try. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, you've got, um, I suppose, way, way back in the day, 
you know, you get like warrior poets who would, yeah, probably Vikings, to be honest, who would go out and then come home and write epic sagas about what they'd done. Mm. But Wilfred Owen isn't a warrior poet, even though he was a, a warrior who was writing poetry. He was yeah. a war poet. He was writing poems about the war. Could you get like a, I'm trying to even think of a funny one, but I can't think of anything. Like, what do you throw in front of the word poet that makes you a different kind of poet, sets you apart from the rest of them? Beat. Be poet. Beat. Oh. <laughs> be poet. <laughs> yeah, beat. That's cutting. Yeah, beat poetry, like you're writing a particular kind of spoken word. I mean, romantic, lyric. Yeah. Verse. So I guess it's... Nonsense. What I'm trying to get at then is what makes war poetry war poetry. Like, is there a style to it or is it just the context? I think, um, I mean, that, the book that you, you picked up, um, which is beautiful, by the way, I'll put an Instagram photo up because it's a, it's a good cover. It is. Um, and I've got the um, the next volume, which is The War Poets of the Second World War. Ah. Um, is it a smaller book? No, it's exactly the same size. Interesting. But uh, it, the subtitle of it is um, The War Poets. And yet, as you say, there's Kipling in there. There's uh, Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Um, Bloody bloody hardy <laughs> um for me the, the war poets implies the people that are actually in, in active duty whether in the trenches sure pilots whatever the trenches does seem to be the particular yeah um site of it um, okay so it's but, nothing nothing about the style or the the meter or anything it's just that they were poets in the war well i mean the style and the meter is all over the place because quite a lot of the war poetry is from people who aren't officers Aren't as educated. Aren't aren't going to be dropping Horace references. Yeah, they're um, just writing completely from the hit poetry. Yeah, there are certain stylistic similarities. I think after after a while, the the habit of war poetry, which would be as you say, kind of warrior poetry, celebrating glorious battle, mm-hmm. um, the Rupert Brooke stuff, which sounds very, it really smacks of fanaticism. Oh yeah, um, to modern ears, I think it it kind of sounds like the kind of death and glory declarations of sort of suicide bombers that they leave oh, yeah, um, for people to find afterwards. But I feel like that's um, more in line with probably the war poetry of the 19th century, where the military history of the 19th century was the British army going around the world and just smashing people who weren't prepared for them. Mm. So I think if anyone wrote any poetry during that time, they'd be writing about the, the great and gracious conquerors. Yeah. So by the end C, of... C. Kipling. Yeah. So by the end of the war, that spirit's taken a crippling. Yes. and Because um, even though it's, it's weird, if anyone who is not from the UK listens to this, it's a very weird relationship. Because I, I walked past, um, on the way here, in uh, Prince Street Gardens, they've got a sort of miniature graveyard set up mm. just for November, where they put up those little crosses and pin poppies to them. But then beside it, they've got a big van that's selling poppy merchandise. <laughs> And even though you technically won that war... By poppy merchandise, do you mean heroin? <laughs> yes, actually. Heroin in a van. Heroin in a van. <laughs> Scotland. You, you've seen Tradespoint. Yeah. Um, no, like mugs and hoodies and stuff. Okay. So they've, 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 they've merchandised uh, Remembrance, but... Um, what was I saying? <laughs> Sorry. Remembrance. Heroin. I was saying that the British have a very weird relationship to the First World War because technically it was a, it was a victory on paper, mm. but nobody won. So I think that was that was the first war like that the British had to deal with since the Napoleonic era, where they actually were soundly 
beaten yeah. or at least crippled by it, yeah. So I suppose that that is the style of the poetry you you, you are seeing in the in a collection like that or simply in the poems of Owen. Yeah. Um a journey from the sort of warrior style at the start to a, a, whatever it is for each poet something very different by the end. Well yeah, you can I think you could actually the only poets that don't change are the ones that die died. too early <laughs> to go to go through that I um brook. Well, yeah, well I think you can most people agree, I assume, that uh, 1914 to 18 is the years that the 19th century actually ended. That long hangover from the 19th century actually ended, and it was the downturn of the empire after that. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm assuming you could see that journey through the poetry year by year. Yeah. Maybe even month by month, depending on what was going on. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's a, there are, you can notch a couple of real turning points. I think Sassoon's Declaration of a Soldier, though it's not poetry, yeah. Is one of those. Were any of them at the Somme? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Owen was at the Somme. Was Owen at the Somme? Yeah. Christ. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to see what the poetry of the Second World War was like. It's a very different kind of war. Well, we'll save that, shall we, for next. <laughs> yeah. Are there, any, are there any particular names you can think of from the Second World War poetry? Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an awful lot more people that we haven't remembered. Because um, it's a different thing, because they're starting from that... They already have a kind of war tradition. They they have from, a war yeah. poetry tradition, so they're, they're in the shadow of people. It's 20, like 20 years later, so they would have grown up reading exactly, Owen yeah. and Graves. Yeah. They're, they're people who are Auden's age. So they're, okay. you know, they're, that and I suppose probably just about generation after and generation before, but they're people that grew up reading um, Owen yeah. and, and Sassoon and Graves. Um, Auden, very much taken with Owen in particular yeah yeah okay let's do um World War Two poetry we'll do we'll do an episode on World War Two poetry just because I mark I'm, the differences I'm so curious about what it could possibly be like and how they would write it thank you so much for listening to Ear Read This if you enjoyed this episode and missed the last one there's plenty more information about Owen Sassoon and the war poets in our episode on Pat Barker's novel Regeneration we'd be thrilled if you followed us on Instagram Facebook Twitter at Ear Read This for all of those Murmurous if you considered leaving us a nice review on iTunes and positively opening our buttercups if you signed up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash this. We'll be back soon. Until then, happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>